Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 17th, 2021. Happy St. Patrick's Day. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So, uh, uh, a... uh, uh, a tweeter uh, named uh, Reluctant Exister last night uh, tweeted out that the Commentary Magazine podcast got results because Joe Biden, in his interview with George Stephanopoulos, which followed a few hours after George Stephanopoulos's interview yesterday morning with Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, Mayorkas said... Uh, you know, uh, to my to uh, illegal uh, people who are crossing the border illegally, don't don't come now. Uh, we ha- don't have our system up yet. Come later. You know, really, this is not the right time to come. But you know, later we'll have a great system, and then you can you know you can swarm the border illegally. And Biden uh, apparently felt the need to correct Mayorkas's statement because he said and i quote where is this uh well first stephanopoulos like fed him the question do you have to say quite clearly don't come hey Mm -hmm. mr president uh can you please correct the mistake that your uh that your aide made in a way that will help you said george stephanopoulos and uh here is what biden said yes i can quite say quite clearly don't come over don't leave your town or city or community. So that was a nice, uh, throwing a nice lob, right? <laughs> you know, softball right down the middle. Mr. President, let me let me tell you what to say to correct, to get you out of a little bit of a jam here. Uh, and uh, he uh, continued, uh, uh, Biden, by saying, well, first of all, there was a surge in the last two years. In 19 and 20, there was a surge as well. And Stephanopoulos said, well, this one might be worse. <laughs> and Biden acknowledged, well, it could be. And then here's what Biden said. The idea that Joe Biden said come because I heard the other day they're coming because they know I'm a nice guy. Here's the deal. They're not, he said. They're not what? They're not thinking he's a nice guy. They're not coming when they're coming. They're not what? But uh, so uh, thank you, reluctant exister, for saying that uh, saying that the commentary magazine podcast gets results because, of course, uh, this is how we began the show uh, yesterday with uh, uh, Mayorkas's astonishing uh, uh, statement. Um, and that's uh, that's uh, okay. So Abe, tell me this. Um, you know what this reminds me of? There's a scene in Ghostbusters where uh, Ghostbusters Two, where where Bill Murray is on the stand and Rick Moranis, who was an accountant in the first movie and has become a lawyer in the second movie, is cross examining him, and Bill Murray is is under his breath, like telling Rick Moranis how to ask him questions that he can answer. Uh, that that was what this was like. Yeah, I mean, you know, but I'm sure Biden will have a, you know, a, a, there's a there's a chorus of 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 Rick Moranis's out there uh, willing to do this. That that's that's the thing, you know. Um, so it, it's kind of um, it's almost the the inverse of the Trump situation, where Trump 
uh, at some point would feel compelled to read from script, say things people wanted him to say at first, and then go off and say the crazy thing because he felt uh, that he had been silenced. Um, this is, you know, uh, where some administration official speaks of, of uh, you know, on behalf of the of the administration, says something unclear, and then Biden has to come in and, and say, no, 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 that's not what what was meant. Um, Kind of similar, I think, to what happened with the with the with the schools uh, uh, with um, uh, what's her name? I, I, I forgot her name. Gail uh, Walensky. Yeah, right. Rochelle Walensky. Rochelle Walensky, right? Yeah, a confrontational interview would have established that <clears throat> this wasn't really a slip of the tongue from your Department of Homeland Security director, but the statement of an ethos that is self-evident in the executive orders you've signed regarding immigration, from the deportation moratoriums to you know, uh, half a dozen other uh, incentive structures to come over the border. Is this not your desired policy? But, you know, if it's his desired policy, so what he doesn't want is bad news stories about how there are a lot of kids at the border in cages, right? That's what he doesn't want. Which, by the way, we haven't but, seen yeah. those images. Where are the images that we saw constantly, relentlessly, sometimes right. fraudulently because they were from right. earlier eras? There, said, there's, to be fair, those weren't real either. Right. Some of them weren't. But like, we, where are the images not only of crying congresswomen, you know, weeping outside of a chain link fence that's near a, a parking lot, but where are the images of the actual detainees? We haven't seen anything or anyone. And there's actually, that's where I think it's not just that he was getting softballs from Stephanopoulos. It's that there are competing narratives that are contradictory at the same time that they're claiming, oh, we don't want all these people to come. You know, his press secretary is continuing to say, well, we inherited this problem. Trump Trump is the reason this is so bad. His DHS messed this up, not us. But, you know, so they, they, they expect the American public First of all, not to ask questions about what is going on, not to question the weird sort of Orwellian doublespeak that's going on in terms of how they describe it, you know, kids in cages versus, you know, what do they call them now? Play spaces. I don't know what they're calling them this week, but Shelter. yeah, it, it, it's straining credulity to ask the American people not to be tough on this administration about this very real problem. What do you, what do you call the opposite of a gotcha? What What is the opposite of a gotcha, right? So a gotcha question is, you know, you set somebody up, you sandbag somebody with a piece of information you have, they don't have, and then you say, how do you respond to this? And they say something, and you're like, oh, well, you know, that's the opposite happened. How do you respond to that? When you have a friendly press who uh, that uh, does what Stephanopoulos did and sort of parrots the answer in the question. It's ventriloquism. Um, it's ventriloquism. That's journalistic ventriloquism. Uh, but it's also, but it, but I mean, I think it is also this uh, notion that um, uh, it is legitimate to, and maybe it is. In other words, like let's say you were living in a world in which the media gave uh, gave all politicians, particularly at the beginning of their terms or whatever, the benefit of the doubt. They got elected. They have an agenda. They're trying to put it in place. They have it. You know, they're just getting their sea legs. They're just putting their people in place. Everybody's, you know, all of this. It is not that the simple act of being, um, you know, let's say charitable or, you know, uh, playing a longer game uh, with somebody uh, isn't isn't legitimate. It's that it's it's illegitimate if it only goes in one direction. And if you play gotcha with everybody else whom you don't like, but you are incredibly soft to the people you do, I think everybody... Uh, 
even Trump supporters had to acknowledge at some point during twenty during his tenure that uh, Fox's existence as a as a sort of corrective to the mainstream media's coverage of the Trump administration tipped into you know sixteen magazine you know fan you know sort of like win a dream date with uh, Stephen Miller or. Jason Miller or Daisy Miller uh, uh, stuff, um, and you know, but uh, that that was itself uh, in part because there was no other there was no other mainstream you know uh, large following voice that was was doing that, and I, I just um, you know uh, if you are talking about an institution like the media, not that the media is an individual institution, but you know, it's a, it's a phenomenon like the media uh, that is dealing with a long-term, uh, you know, uh, decline in credibility, and it's going to be nice to somebody and mean to somebody else based on on politics. I know this is like like playing an old, you know, playing an old song over and over again. Um, but at particularly at a time when there are declining ratings and declining interest in the news and all of that. Uh, to the the extent to which the uh, the press becomes accommodationist rather than challenging and doesn't in fact work to create conflict and narratives and stuff like that like during the trump administration when when the press had this kind of resurgence uh, of interest in its ac- activities is self defeating and uh you know i mean it, it's just, it's interesting you know um I don't even know what Biden means when he says there was a surge in 2019 and 2020 because there was, I mean, there was a surge in 2018 that, that in 2017 and 2018, it got better 2019 and 2020. Uh, And now, you know, it's going back in the worst direction. I mean, uh, Mayorkas said yesterday that there were going to be more arrests at the border uh, you know, in the coming weeks than had ever been the case. There were going to be more detentions at the border than 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 at any time uh, pretty much in recent history or all of history. Uh, just to jump on the, the press point again, um, you know, John, you had said, I think, last week or the week before that the Biden presidency feels like a, a kind of presidency by a committee. Um, so I think the press is sort of in on that committee. Right uh, to some extent, certain members of it, as 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 Stephanopoulos um, revealed, you know, um, if, if 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 he's there, sort of, you know, getting Biden to say the right thing, um, then then they're a part of this as well. Um, something else, by the way, uh, you could say that we, we've gotten results. Um, Biden announced the press conference right uh, a week a week from tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, can we also can we also note a story that uh, is frequently used in the mainstream media to to bash Republicans for being crazy? Um, that Axios had a scoop yesterday. I sent it around to you guys too. You, that they actually have found people who are on the terrorist watch list coming across the border. Obviously, most of the people coming across the border are from Central America and Mexico, but they have found. Uh, I think someone one of them was from Serbia um, and others from Yemen. Uh, they were on the watch list and they were arrested. So it's not as if having a totally open border and, and, and you know, signaling that you're not going to be enforcing uh, 
the law is not going to invite trouble in the same way that I think it's also been shown that a lot of these unaccompanied minors are being brought into this country for nefarious purposes, not just, you know, as, you know, potential American citizens. I mean, sex trafficking is a real problem. And that is something that happens across the border. So to to downplay those issues in order to give Biden his sort of I'm the kinder, gentler guy who's not going to build a wall narrative is 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 really morally kind of suspect if, when, if the media is playing into that. But watch lists are bad. <laughs> right. They're watch xenophobic. List, They're xenophobic. Watch lists are bad. So therefore, that people came out. That just means that evil uh, holdovers from the Trump administration are using the terrible watch list as a weapon to hurt the more but humanitarian. This is another uh, emerging narrative, though, right? This is another story we're hearing from the more progressive left, which is that actually there's a deep state problem going on here where holdouts, you know, Trumpians in the in DHS and elsewhere are actually actively trying to undermine Biden's important agenda. I mean, there is the, the joke on I think the online joke is that you can call it blue anon, like, you know, there's QAnon on the right and blue anon on the left. But there are these there are these stories being shared that people truly believe that actually there's a you know some sort of internal effort to undermine Biden in the way that Trump you know kind of created some of these theories. So it's at least worth keeping an eye on because the press isn't gonna isn't gonna do much to undermine those stories because it works towards its own larger narrative advantage. Well, so uh, Biden in this interview with uh, with George Stephanopoulos said a, a, a bunch of things. Um, he he said that uh, he is interested in filibuster reform, by which he means that the innovation, I believe, of the 90s, which was to allow uh, the filibuster to become a virtual rather than an actual fact, which is to say the filibuster, the filibuster in the Senate depends on the fact that the Senate has unlimited debate, as it's called, and that closing debate takes... 60 votes and that uh but because there is unlimited debate in theory you can hold the floor open forever to discuss a matter before it is brought to a vote when you're going to get the 60 votes to close debate and so the way that this was done uh, before the first uh, filibuster reform that it, they're now talking about um biden's talking about overthrowing was that people had to stand on the floor and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And the most famous version of this, of course, is in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the Frank Capra movie with Jimmy Stewart, where at the, where at the end, as he is being um, uh, unjustly persecuted uh, by a corrupt political machine in his home state, he takes to the floor and, you know, collapses after 20 hours of talking. We've seen a couple of these talking filibusters in the last year uh, we saw um ted cruz i can't remember what he did what he he read green at some point interestingly enough he read green eggs and ham yeah. in the course of that filibuster where he did the talking filibuster but there had been a reform to make it so that you could just declare that you wanted there to be a filibuster and other business could be conducted while that issue became under filibuster rather than all Senate business being shut down. So Biden, following Joe Manchin, says, you know, we really do need filibuster. It's too easy to filibuster. It's way too easy, and we really need filibuster reform. People should have to stand there and talk because there needs to be a consequence or it's got to be really hard or whatever to do this. This 
It should be said that this yes. didn't come out of the blue. This is something that Joe Manchin said that he would be open to after being very definitive about his refusal to go along with the far left end of his, his caucus and eliminate the filibuster entirely. He would say, he said, okay, well, I'm open to some reforms, the, that reform being the return of the talking filibuster, right. which is the only reason why it ever came out, probably. The only reason right. why it came out. Okay. So, uh, you know, this is, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's silliness in some sense. Um, because so whose ox is being gored here? The Democrats are the ones who want to advance legislation. <clears throat> they want to then create a filibuster reform system that makes it easier for Republicans, not harder for Republicans to filibuster. You think it sounds like it's harder. Um, but you know, as long as you throw the debate to somebody else or something like that, you can filibuster things for weeks. It is a little bit harder insofar as most of the minority has to be physically on the floor. Well, that's in order true. To preserve that's right. this this rule, which is why a lot of good government types have been like have been kind of flirting with return of the talking filibuster because it would force you to actually be in the chamber as a legislator instead of doing whatever it is you're doing, going on camera. Right. Okay, fair enough. So maybe it's harder, but, but not, uh, not really. I, I'm, uh, I mean, it's really obviously hard. harder. It's obviously harder than than deeming something filibustered. But the rewards for the, the a determined minority are far greater than they would be under the current system because you actually have the capacity to delay legislation, all legislation, for indefinite periods of time whereas you the the current iteration of the filibuster made the it just basically it was a formality well you know the other weird thing is that uh dick durbin the senator from the democratic senator from illinois said this like crazy thing yesterday about uh mitch mcconnell and how durbin now knows that uh it's really important to um change the filibuster rules uh, because of Mitch McConnell using them so horribly uh, in, you know, uh, in during his tenure as Senate Majority Leader. But you see, when you're the Senate Majority Leader, you don't need the filibuster because you have the majority. The 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 notion McConnell never used the filibuster. Uh, it is. It was a bizarre. <clears throat> it was a totally bizarre thing to say. Uh, McConnell used his position as Senate Majority Leader to marshal the Senate majority, not to use the uh, rules that that empower the minority to interfere with the good working order of the Senate majority. And, and the Democrats, correct me if I'm wrong, recently used the filibuster to spike the crime reform bill that Senator Tim Scott wanted, you know, was trying to push forward. So there, this, I, the Jim Crow argument about the filibuster also falls flat in the face of evidence. They, the Democrats were happy when they were in the minority to use the filibuster to block a minority senator's, <laughs> a, a member of a, a racial minority's bill for crime and justice reform. So it's it's patently ridiculous. The point about the Senate is that it is not a majoritarian institution. It is not structured as a majoritarian institution. Every state gets two senators, no matter what size the state is. That makes it not a one-man, one-vote system. 
It has never been a one man, one vote system. And, and the rules that govern this notion that there should be a three fifths majority to close debate in order to bring things up for a vote is an extension of the Senate's anti-majoritarian, anti-one-person, one-vote system that has been part of the constitutional structure of the United States from the very beginning. Now, can you overturn it? Can you say that everything should be one-man, one-vote? Yes, but if you start going down that road, then you get to the thing that that Democrats are so uh, enraged about, which is it's not fair for Wyoming with 650,000 people to have the same number of senators as California, which has 39 million people. So therefore, what are you supposed to do then? If you go to that system, then the entire American, the structure of American government is ultimately under question, under assault and at risk. And, you know, this is part of the reason why the war against the Electoral College is so interesting It's not that the Electoral College should be sacrosanct merely because it's in the Constitution. It is that once you start jiggering with the American system, how it was set up and and laid out, for very complicated reasons, um, you throw into question the entire composition of American political, social, and and, uh, public life. And so... It's not too much to say that the elimination of the filibuster uh, takes us down a road that will empower the people who literally want to take the Constitution and shred it. Um, And people want to shred the Constitution all the time. People want to muck around with freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom to, uh, you know, uh, the right to bear arms. Uh, how how we deal with uh, self-incrimination, uh, uh, the whole notion that uh, laws, that uh, that the federal government uh, does not trump state law, uh, except in matters of interstate commerce and a couple of other things. Um, these are, you know, these are things that are very annoying to people who want their w- will to be done by Washington and uh, are annoyed that it's harder to get things done than they would wish them to be. Uh, as long as they're in power, of course, because they don't want things to get done, the, you know, by the other side. It is ironic that, that the people who proclaim themselves the resistance are often uh, really frustrated by the fact that resistance is built into our system for that very reason. And that's I, I would add to your list um, statehood, making, you know, Puerto Rico, D.C., other places, turning those into states. That's another way of trying to get around the built in uh, precautions that the founders placed uh, when it, when they were deciding how to how to balance the needs of you know individuals versus the federal government that's an important point also because of course statehood you know the the handling of statehood in the first you know the the first uh, uh, 60 years of the American political experiment, 70 years of the American political experiment was a proxy for slavery and so uh, you want to start making elemental changes to the American the structure of American uh, government and the expansion of, 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 of the states in order to advance the ideological aims of one party, that is a path to civil war. We know it's a path to civil war because we've been through it. So I don't want to be too alarmist about this, but, uh, but you know, it is, it is something to be, you know, considered. Very I mean, also, uh, the other, the comical thing to me about um, those who talk about getting rid of the Electoral College um, on the left 
um, is that, of course, the, the Electoral College has in part um, uh, been a check on the kind of populism that they don't want to see, right? I mean, right. If, they, if they're worried about populism, then, you know, they, 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 they ain't seen nothing. If, if, well, it, <clears throat> the fun thing is it's really not hard to talk Socratically an advocate for the abolition of electoral college into inventing something like the electoral college. Because think about all the close races that we've had at the state level for presidential elections to say nothing of Senate elections, what have you. And the prospect of a national recount is simply anathema. So you can't even wrap your head around it, right? So it would, they say, okay, well, obviously we would recount at the state level. Well, okay, but then should all states count the same? Or should it be, you know, apportioned based on population? Well, of course it should be apportioned based on population because there's no reason why Wyoming should have the same representation as California, as you just said. Well, then we should create some sort of a system whereby certain states based on their population have more say in the outcome of a presidential election than another one, right? And eventually you get to the Electoral College without having to actually <laughs> say, you know, support the Electoral College. You're right. Um, so, uh, Wanted to talk to you again today, as I am all month, about the telling. Mark Gerson's book, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life, the story of the Passover Haggadah and the Passover Seder. Uh, Just a little taste uh, from the book. Um, One of the most difficult things for people to grasp, in uh, modern people to grasp, though this was not a problem in pre-modern days all that much, apparently, um, uh, is the existence of the plagues as a central part of the story of uh, leading up to the uh, the Exodus? Uh, why did God visit the plagues on the Egyptians when, of course, the Egyptian people weren't themselves responsible for Pharaoh's decision? And in fact, God, at various points, hardens Pharaoh's heart. Uh, in order seemingly to continue the plague. So what does this tell us about God? It's very mysterious. It's very hard to understand. And uh, there's a a long passage in the telling by Mark Gerson uh, where he goes through the plagues and why the plagues exist. And he he says, uh, you know, if you ask a five-year-old, you know, you're God, you have unlimited power and ability, your goal is to free the Jews from slavery, how would you do it? And as he says, a five-year-old might suggest a flying vehicle, a giant water slide that starts in Egypt and ends in the desert, supersonic foot speed that kicks in when the Egyptians are sleeping, or a drink that puts the Egyptians to sleep for enough time for the Jews to escape. The five-year-old would be unlikely to suggest anything like the plague sequence in Exodus. So why why does it happen? And here is what, what Mark says. God chooses the cumbersome, difficult, painful, and inefficient mechanism of the plagues to free the Jews because he is really trying to do something else. He is attempting to win an argument if he can convince the Egyptians, the most powerful regime in the ancient world, that he is the one true God, then he would win the world. The polytheistic regime whose logic culminates in slavery and child murder would lose. The monotheistic vision whose logic is universal love and ubiquitous concern would triumph. So that's just page 241 of the telling by Mark Gerson. Get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookseller, download the audiobook through Audible or whatever, and uh, and, and go to town. Uh, so guess what? Uh, Joe Biden was also asked about our favorite governor, uh, or our least favorite governor, or our least favorite public official, uh, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, we remain on this uh, fascinating sort of frozen position here where uh, much of the political leadership, uh, Democratic political leadership, 
in New York State has come out saying that Cuomo should resign. And George Stephanopoulos asked the president about this. And he said, if the investigation shows that he did wrong, then he should resign, which is was taken, you would have thought, when this uh, first reports of this came out, that uh, Biden had really moved the ball way down the field. Like, oh, my God. So you mean if an investigation proves that he that he uh, you know uh, sexually molested a woman in his office, uh, thus committing uh, you know a felony assault, um, should he resign? Of course he should resign. Yeah, but to be fair, remember okay. recall what Biden considers you know just like friendly handsiness versus assault. So you know we're, we're starting from a different bar. I think if you're if okay. you're Joe Biden to begin with, fair enough. But but if he said that, it's like what is he saying? It's like yes, if an investigation proves that he committed a felony, he should resign. I really don't think that that's really moving moving the ball very much. But you can see how um, how that. Uh, you know, affects things. And uh, yet again, we are back in the position where the political class has made its decision. The decision is that Cuomo needs to go. But the electorate of New York State is not making that decision based on the polling, right? I mean, you do everything based on polling, you're an idiot. But I mean, you have more than 50% of people in these polls saying they want him to continue being governor. Um that number sinks below 50% or 40%. You would have thought the the one-two punch of the sexual harassment charges and the nursing homes would get him. But again, I think we have not we are not yet reckoning with the consequences of a public that has now come to assume that all politicians are scum. And that the question is not are they scum, but are they are scum? And if there are scum, it's fine. If you are a Democratic politician who is worried about, you know, I don't know what, about being able to attack Republican politicians or something like that, or you hate Cuomo because he's a monster and you want to get him out of the way because he is screwing up the possibilities of dynamic change in the Democratic Party in New York State where you can't advance and you can't get anywhere and you can't get anything done because, you know, everything has to go through, um, you know, uh, Don Fanucci. Um and also, I think the, there's a question now of, um, and this is, you know, across the board, can we compartmentalize what's scummy, right? Uh, is it, is, is he, is it, is he scum shot through the, the entire project? Or can we say, yeah, he's, he's terrible in, in these respects, but I like that, he, that they've done X, Y, and Z. Um, because character is off the table now. Um, if, 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 if it was a question of character, it would sort of, it would matter much less. Results would matter less. It would, the, the, the matter of the, them being scum would, would, would be the thing. Yeah. I think it gives voters a little too much credit. Um, honestly, it's just going to sound a little elitist of me, but why not lean into that? <gasps> elitist. Failure of character elitist at part. a small highbrow intellectual magazine with a small circulation. Yeah. The, everybody is. Sound uh, elitist. Is, well, the notion that everybody is you know terrible, so why not just embrace the guy who's terrible on my part is a rationalization. It's something you work yourself into believing. It is not an instinctual uh, thought process that led you there. It's just something you have to you have to convince yourself of in order to justify a preconceived con- position, which is that I'm going to support my guy come hell or high water. And I don't recall any Democrats regarding the same instinct on the part of Republicans when Donald Trump was in the dock two times. 
to say that, oh, well, you know, the polls are what they are and you know, he's their guy and they're just going to have to stand by him. No, it was a moral failing on the part of Republican voters. And it was an abdication of the responsibility of Republican lawmakers not to exercise their responsibilities in the in the Constitution, state and federal constitutions that give them the authority to determine what is scummy and what is removable and what is not. It is not something that you defer to voters on. It is your judgment and your judgment alone. None of these, you know, nobody was making any excuses for Republicans then, so they shouldn't for Democrats now. I'm not saying should or shouldn't. I'm, this is not a. I'm not. I'm well, not I'm saying. I'm not what I'm saying is, is pointing to the polls is a is a refuge. I mean, it's just. It's. I'm it's not pointing to the polls as a refuge. I'm pointing to the polls as the as the re, as the rescue of 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 Andrew Cuomo. I mean, if if the entire political structure of the state wants him to resign, and the president is hinting that he might consider resigning, and everybody would like him, and the the press has turned on him, and all of that. But that's and what I'm he saying. Sta- is and really. he stays. And he stays. That is because he has enough support to stay. And it's not what they should do. It's a question of what it means that they have this. And you're saying. I'm see, saying is- they can forge ahead and, and make a messaging campaign and try to convince voters of the necessity of this if they really believed it. They don't really believe it. They don't really want to eject Andrew Cuomo from office. They want to oh, be on the position sure on the do. right side of it. I don't. I don't. I, I, oh, if they did, they, sure would, they, do. they would proceed. This there is an Every impeachment inquiry. Every Democrat in there Albany is an impeachment inquiry in Albany right now, and it will come out with some recommendation or another. And I bet you it's going to be harsh. And I bet you dollars that they're going to defer to the polls because they don't really want to pursue this. Every major politician in New York State in the Democratic Party now is thirsting for his departure because they've had enough. They've had enough. It's been, you know, I don't know, it's been 10 years of his, uh, you know, vicious, terrifying, monstrous personal, you know, backdoor behavior that has uh, intimidated and terrified them. And they want him gone. You could have said the exact same thing about Republicans in Congress and Donald Trump circa December, January of 2021. But who are you talking about? reason why they didn't, they did. Republicans in the Senate conference. Yeah, I know. But who who are you? Who were very free on background about saying how horrible this guy was for them and the party alike. Yeah, but But he was going. Yeah, but he was leaving in 20 days. A, he was leaving in 20 days anyway, right? He was leaving in a week. Okay. They said he would be around forever. They, that why did they do that? Because the voters didn't want them to turn on Trump, which is exactly the story in New York State. The question is, why don't the voters want to turn on Cuomo? Why is it okay with them that Cuomo sent people back to nursing homes to die and to be and to and to sicken other people? And why is it okay for him to have person after person after person in his employ accuse him? Of sexual harassment. Now, by the way, the sexual harassment stuff, I think, is an interesting generational challenge. I think that what you are seeing here with these charges of sexual harassment is that there are a lot of people over the age of 50 who think that a lot of this stuff is garbage. And they think that everyone's young and too sensitive and they went, you know, they, they've been through it. They've been workplaces and they had to live with bosses who were jerks and they worked with bosses who were jerks and all, everyone's a snowflake and they should all, there may be a generational divide here because, you know, that, that's a real thing. And that, you know, younger people and, you know, woke people and feministy people 
feel a certain way and uh, people over, you know, people over 50 uh, don't feel that way at all. I don't know. It's an interesting contrast to, 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 to be thinking through what, what's going on with Cuomo at the same time that Gavin Newsom faces this recall, right? Because there's a, an example where the people are the ones who put their signatures on a piece of paper to, to start that process in motion. And it is actually the Democratic elite who's protecting Elizabeth Warren has, has done the saccharine video where she's like, oh, the vast right wing conspiracy is coming for Gavin. But in fact, I think if he is ultimately undone, it will be because of his hypocrisy. He just gave an interview, uh, I think it was on, was it on CNN? He gave an interview recently where he was asked about Jake the fact Tapper, that he was, yeah. yeah, Jake Tapper was asking, oh, do you regret having, you know, gone to the French laundry for this fancy dinner when everybody else was on lockdown? And his answer was so flippant and, and obnoxious and like, oh, let's move on. Like, I mean, yeah, it probably wasn't a great idea. But anyway, but it's that kind of flippancy and, you know, sort of elite disdain for the concerns of the people that might end up costing him his job. And so the fact that with Cuomo, it's I would hope to see that about the nursing home situation. And we've talked about this endlessly, like the real scandal with Cuomo isn't the sexual harassment, it's the nursing home deaths. So what is it about New York politics? Is it there's a lack of an alternative um, there that I mean, who will replace him? Who will who will do any better? The cynicism about our politicians, though, I think, has the one benefit of not turning every single thing a politician does into a morality play, which we just did for four years, there's there's something actually reasonable about having that kind of cynical, instrumental relationship with one's elected officials, because then they can't disappoint you in quite the same way. Uh, Look, oh, go ahead. I just think on, on the matter of why voters um, still are okay with him, um, I think it has to do with the massive size of their investment in him um, over the course of the pandemic. Uh, he was he was uh, like everything to them. You know, they 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 really saw him as the single beacon of sanity and reason and responsible governance. And it's none of it's true. But um, he became this totemic figure to them. Um, uh, and there's just there there is essentially nothing he can do um, at this point to get them to jump ship. The, they, they are they are signed on. Well, and he well, was look, combative with Trump. He was like Fauci with fists. Like he'd actually say the things they wanted to see someone say to Trump. Look, I mean, so it could be as simple as this. In 2018, uh, Cuomo ran for governor and he got 60% of the vote. And so people like the person that they voted for. Uh, they, they, or, you know, they're, they, they already, they, they voted for him twice or three times before and they're fine with him. And, and yeah, so he, you know, so he's done something bad or something like that. But, you know, it, it means a lot to have cast your vote for someone. That's why it's, that's why it's so meaningful. Those rare occasions when people turn on the person that they voted for and don't vote for them again. And it doesn't happen that often. There's also you know? a weird dynamic in New York that the alternative to Cuomo style democratic governance is working families party style democratic governance, whereas the Republicans aren't as much of a threat as the far left. The far left wants Cuomo out of there too, because they think they will inherit New York. Right. But democratic voters in the state have routinely demonstrated that they're not as far left liberal as much of the political classes. And he destroyed Cynthia Nixon and Cynthia Nixon 
had had a profound disproportionate level of support. Ran as the left wing alternative. The actress Cynthia Nixon ran as the left wing alternative. She did primary Cuomo. Well, she didn't successfully primary. Right, but she 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 ran she ran against him in a primary. Right. So, um, I don't. This probably is too sophisticated a calculation for most voters to you know make. But nevertheless. The Republicans aren't really the threat. It's it's the fact that you would they he's the bulwark against the Alexandria Ocasio Cortez wing of the party that is ascendant and that isn't as appealing to Democratic voters in New York as right. liberals in in New York think they are. By by the way, this is a very there's a very interesting thing going on in the New York mayoral race to succeed Bill De Blasio, who is term limited. Um, uh, the primary is in June, moved from September, which is when New York has traditionally had its primaries just to make everything as you know ridiculous as possible. Um, and there's you know there's a very large field and um, everybody is running. Uh, there are only, there are two candidates who are not running to the far left. One of them is a, a banker, an African American banker, uh, works at Citibank named Raven Wire, and the other is Andrew Yang. And Andrew Yang is running as a kind of, uh, you know, post-partisan technocratic, the same kind of person that he was when he ran uh, for president. Uh, He's also the only Asian in the race. And he is up Yang by 10 points. And Nate Silver made the interesting point yesterday that it should not be lost on New York City uh, voters that the guy who is not running as the left-wing lunatic is leading in the primary. Uh, You know, this state, you know, this state, like everything else, the Overton window, as we call it, has shifted overwhelmingly to the left without question. Remember, it was only 10 years ago or 12 years ago that there had been a, you know, there had been a, a, a three or four, there had been a three-term Republican governor and there had been 20, if you want to count Michael Bloomberg as a Republican, there had been 20 years of Republican mayors in New York City from Rudy Giuliani through Michael Bloomberg. Um the state shifting to the left, as far to the left as it shifted, Cuomo himself, as as you sort of indicate, ran, did, paid a lot of lip service to certain left wing cultural issues, particularly on you know on on gay matters and stuff like that, but but worked in weird uh, conspiratorial ways to block the legislative ambitions of the left in his own party by 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 being in on a backdoor deal that kept republicans in charge of the state senate uh even though democrats had the majority in the state senate and how this worked i can't really three democrats doing cuomo's bidding like caucused with the republicans in order to prevent the far left from so this state has moved to the far has moved left but it isn't as left as the left wants it to be. And uh, that also could be something, as you sort of indicate, that maybe helping Cuomo that we, that, that, that we can't quite suss out. And Cuomo has very high support in the African-American community. And you could then look at that as the Biden stuff, right? That, that one of the things that was revealed in the 2020 campaign is that African-American voters, particularly older African-American voters, were more moderate then people understood them to be. They had been thought, partially because of the Jesse Jackson thing, to be vanguards of sort of, you know, left rainbow coalition thinking and all of this. And it turns out that they're not, right? They have their politics are very interesting. Um, but you know, 
we'll watch Andrew Yang because he's a he's a he's a he's an interesting person because the press corps in New York City hates him. They think he's a boob. They think he doesn't know anything about the city. They think he's you know he says silly things and he and he's and he and he isn't as rich as he said he is. He's not as successful as he said he is and. He left the city when the pandemic happened in order to help his autistic uh, son do better and have a you know better educational experience somewhere else and all of this. And this is all supposed to damage him. And he's just there at like 31% of the vote. No one else is above 20. Well, he does say silly things from the perspective of the, the woke brigade, not just because he's, you know, his Twitter presence isn't a constant stream of affectation and emotion. Like he goes into bodegas and takes a picture of a banana and he's like, banana. And <laughs> people are like, well, you are such an empty suit. And it's not but, even a bodega. It's like a risk. <laughs> right. And then they're like, that's not an actual bodega. Yeah. It's, it's extremely insular, but he's also very frustrating to them because Should we tell people what a bodega is. A bodega is a small food market. Uh, generally speaking in a Hispanic think of Latino a Publix neighborhood. That's smaller. No, it's more like um, yeah. a, it's more like, it's like a larger Seven Eleven. Yeah, and it has like a cat. Seven Eleven. There's a cat, and they sell these weird. It's they sell these weird kind of Fig Newtons wrapped in plastic <laughs> up at the front, and they overcharge for milk anyway. And, and in many neighborhoods, the bodega is what what's there where there's no supermarket. Anyway, sorry. Right? Yeah, it serves a lot of people. Anyway, whatever. So, uh, but he's also extremely frustrating insofar as he's baited constantly by the left to respond to people who say mean things about him or like comics who talk about him and use uh, ethno centric terms that are derogatory. Um, and he never takes the bait. He's always gracious. He's always deferential. He's never rude. He's never sneering. He's never condescending. And that is anathema to a particular kind of left wing online, exclusively online activist. And in that sense, you know, I, I don't have much, uh, support for his particular policies. I think a UBI is a terrible policy on top of being unworkable. Nevertheless, he's a nice guy. He's willing and, to, and that would yeah. be good for the city. He all, he's willing to do something that a lot on the woke left also have shut down as even uh, uh, basically claiming you can't even do this anymore. He'll have debates with people on the other side. He went on Ben Shapiro's show, which of course horrified everyone on the left. Like, how dare you go and talk to Ben Shapiro? And they had a debate. Like, they, they disagree. They talked about their disagreements in a respectful way. It was really useful as a listener to hear that kind of debate. We don't have enough of those and he's willing to do them. And I think that's actually that I agree with. No, I don't agree with his uh, with Wang with his Yang's political positions. But I think he's great in terms of how he's willing to go about arguing with arguing them. I mean, the, the other the other comedy here is somehow that it was legitimate for him to run for president of the you know of the United States when he had never done anything. But somehow it's illegitimate for him to run for mayor of New York City, a job that you know was ha- had been you know was held by uh, you know. Uh, by a businessman who had never done anything in politics for 12 years and and is now you know, being run by a guy who's uh, 20 years in politics before that uh, made him uh, uncommonly the worst and most incompetent mayor in the history of the city. I mean, so if you never want him to be president of the United States, the best thing uh, that could happen right. to you is for him to become mayor of New York right. City. But my point is, this is how you're supposed to do it. Like, he got himself a public profile, and in part because of his personal comportment. I mean, it's not just issue-driven. It's important what, what Noah's saying about him. Um, he was an uncommonly graceful presence, 
on that on that on those stages like it, it, weird like because w- what the hell was he doing there you know and then he kept passing this two point two percent three percent threshold to stay there even though that doesn't sound like a lot of people but nonetheless he passed it because there was something about the way he was carrying himself that meant to people that he had something interesting to say that they might be wanting to hear and so now he's gone from a nation of 330 million people to a city of 8 million. Um, and he speaks to an ethnic group, and we should talk about this later, not in this podcast, but maybe later. He is speaking to an, to, to an, uh, an ethnic group, uh, uh, Asians, who are developing, very rapidly developing a political consciousness that is going to be a very important factor in American politics over the next 20 years and where the politics of where they are and who they support and all of that are entirely up for grabs because their cultural interests may lean them in one direction and their political interests may lean them in another and their interest in education may take them in an entirely different direction and Yang may be the harbinger of this newly awakened sense of collective consciousness among among Asian Americans who are not only uh, rightly complaining of a wild surge in, in hate crimes against them, but also are dealing with the fact that the political establishments, particularly in blue cities are, are array- and, and in the educational establishment, are arraying themselves against them to retard their growth and their opportunity to achieve the American dream. So that's a very interesting thing that's going on. And another interesting thing that is going on, of course, is how on earth is this uh, stimulus going to affect uh, markets and how is it going to affect public policy? Where is the Keynesian moment going to lead us? How is this massive increase in public debt going to affect uh, borrowing in the future and lending in the future and the Fed's behavior and the Treasury's behavior and all of that. And for answers to those questions and more, you need to look to our friends at the Bonson Group run by David Bonson, by coastal management firm with $2.5 billion under management, um, uh, about 30 pro- professional uh, financial managers, including uh, former uh, Council of Economic Advisors head Larry Kudlow, uh, and uh, to understand the interplay of politics and policy um, and how that will should affect and impact your investments, uh, you can look to their two internet products, the dctoday.com, a daily newsletter, and dividendcafe.com, a weekly newsletter, for the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti that is most financial management financial advice and financial services in the United States. So that's the Bonson Group. Take a look. Um, So uh, Donald Trump went on Fox last night and said a couple of uh, interesting things. Uh, He said uh, everybody should take the vaccine. It's a great vaccine. Of course, we have three vaccines. So I don't know which vaccine he means by saying it's a great vaccine. Um, I guess they're all great. Um, and, uh, and in a sort of weirdly condescending way, a lot of people went, that's good. That's really good. Cause that's good. Cause you know, there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy among Republicans and we really need Republicans to take the vaccine. There's a lot of vaccine hesitancy. Um, 
I really wonder about this vaccine hesitancy thing, because this is where we start getting into whether or not polls can actually accurately measure what right of center people think anymore, because the answer is some pollster calls you and you're a Republican voter, you're a right of center person and says, are you going to do the thing that you know is what we want you to say? And they're going to say, we're not, I'm not doing it because screw you and the horse you rode in on, you mainstream media, you know, POS. So, also, yes, I'm not going to take the vaccine. How you like them apples, buddy? And does that actually reflect what they're going to do when, when, when it's like when there's a vaccine at every at every uh, CVS? It is, by the way, a lot more fun to get it. It's a lot more fun to be a conservative in a largely liberal area because then you get to really shock the pollsters who call expecting the liberal answer, and when you don't give it, that kind of their follow up question falls flat. But anyway, go ahead. Right. Abe was going to say something. I don't, well, I also I found when this whole point came up recently about because uh, the Fauci had said it and others have said it, about why Donald Trump hasn't been talking up the vaccine more um, now, uh, it would really do a world of good. I, I had to laugh because. Um, when he was talking up the vaccine, that spurred everyone uh, on that side to say, "Well, I don't trust this. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not taking anything Donald Trump recommends, including Kamala Harris. Remember yes. that moment? Yes. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Andrew, so Andrew Cuomo, up. Andrew Cuomo, and Kamala Harris. So right. Andrew Cuomo said that he would not accept the findings of the FDA." That he would convene an independent panel of experts who had just finished smashing old people over the heads to kill them and remove their brains to decide whether or not the vaccine was good, like his toadying Doogie Hauser guy who covers up for his nursing home scandal. Like he has any idea how to do ep- how to do research into vaccines, right? So. T- tell me if I brought this to the show already, because I don't remember, but I wrote a piece for the website last week based on this polling about vaccine hesitancy. There was an NPR Marist poll that came out that I thought had a clue in it that suggests we've been analyzing this thing all wrong. We've only been talking about vaccine hesitancy in terms of race. Remember, there was this very sympathetic response to African-American hesitancy, and then it started showing up among white voters and evangelicals, and it was a much less sympathetic response. But nevertheless, we've been talking about this in terms of partisanship and race, and maybe that's all wrong, because this poll found that there was little statistical difference, negligible statistical difference between black people and white people who said they would take the vaccine. And while there were more Republicans and Democrats who said as much, the vast majority, there was a majority of Republicans who said they would take the vaccine. And what it broke this down in, in, into subgroups, which it has its own problems because the smaller the subgroup is, the less reliable the sample is, what have you, all those caveats aside, what vaccine hesitancy seemed to me to correspond more with was density, was people who lived in rural or small towns were less likely to say they were going to get it or had even tried to get it than people who lived in the suburbs or bigger smaller cities or bigger cities, which is, has two conclusions that you can draw from it. One, it's intuitive because you're around less people, so your urgency is lower. And second is that it's a much more intractable problem, a much more complex problem, and one that robs you of a lot of your capacity to talk about this in smug and condescending terms, which makes it a lot less fun. So we actually probably can't address this through public policy terms and just getting Donald Trump out there to pound the table about it isn't going to do one thing. Look, it's been more than half a century since there was a call for everybody in the country to get vaccinated for something, right? Every year parents go through the process 
of kind of forced vaccination of their children. And as we know, there is some resistance to this on people who think they know better and don't and are gulled by knaves and fools and monsters into believing that their ignorant understanding of herd immunity and and how and how disease works in children uh, because they have the mystical knowledge of having given birth to a child somehow trumps you know uh the incredible work that is done on 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 vaccines in particular you know not just not drugs in general but on vaccines in particular right so but we know that there's a lot of hesitancy uh or that is built up and no but i mean it's never in my lifetime maybe bird flu or um or uh swine flu although swine flu wasn't really that much among people in the in the 70s but when have we been told we've got to go out and get vaccinated i mean we've been told you should go get a flu shot so you don't get the flu but no one has made it this kind of public campaign so we have no we have no history uh of understanding how people react to these things this is the first and you're calling it vaccine hesitancy but we also don't know how many people were really vaccinated in the united states like during the polio how do we know how many years it took for people to get the polio vaccine. And and the other thing about vaccine hesitancy is why wouldn't people have vaccine hesitancy when the news stories beginning in January were it's impossible to get the vaccine. People are online for 6 hours and they cancel the appointments and you can I mean I, I went through this. I just got my second shot yesterday. You know, and and uh but it took me, you know, seven or eight hours to arrange to get my parents a, a vaccination. And they were, of course, they're, my parents are in their 90s. And, you know, just getting onto a site to make a reservation and all that. So that was pub- That was all everywhere. Everybody knew about that. So the idea will be, well, wh- what's my point? I'm not even going to be able to get it. The appointments don't work. It's like Obamacare all over again. So I'll wait. And then, again, pollsters call right-wingers, and right-wingers say, I am going to give you the answer you don't want to hear because I hate you. Well, and it's not even the people who say, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear because I hate you. There's a there's a vast swath of people who simply have an idea. Their attitude is, wait and see. It's not, I'll never get it. It's the, the combination of the logistical challenges of getting it, the weird messaging from public health officials about the fact that even if you get it, nothing changes with a kind of natural, healthy skepticism about, wow, I don't really know what the long term they're saying. This is all, you know, they're saying all these things, but I don't understand it. So maybe I'll just wait and see. I'll wait and see if there are bad side effects. I'll wait and sort of follow the news. I will eventually get it when I feel like it's safe. So there's a, there is a hesitancy there, but it's not it's often a combination of factors. And I will say, look, when H1N1 came through, my kids were under the age of five. And even here in DC, which is generally an incompetent um, city, we all knew where to go to show up. We stood in long lines to get our kids two doses of vaccine because that one actually was quite dangerous for young children. Um, And, you know, so people got their kids vaccinated. And I don't know how widespread that was nationwide, but it was, you know, it was a it it was one of those instances where you did need to go and stand in line and get vaccinated and bring your kids back. And we I did that with my young kids Um, and it wasn't available to everyone. I actually got it as an adult because there wasn't enough vaccine for for adults to all get it. So I do feel like we've had little little rehearsals for this. But for the hesitancy, I don't always think it's partisan for the people who do it. They literally are just getting bombarded with mixed messages and then their natural skepticism kicks in. And so they just wait and see. So hopefully they won't wait too long because that would be bad for herd immunity, obviously. But I I understand it, even if I don't endorse the approach. 
Right. You guys, when running a business, HR issues can kill you. And I, I don't mean actually kill you uh, since we're talking about vaccines and the virus. They can, they can screw up your business. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. So Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to give them a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain compliance, all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month, no hidden fees, cancel any time. Look, you didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, you know, I, I just want to close out with this, which is uh, we we just read this week about the uh, crap show that is going on in Europe with the AstraZeneca a vaccine where um, the political interference here is all to the bad. Uh, it is uh, Angela Merkel freaking out about a couple of news stories uh, about blood clotting problems and suspend and uh, causing a cascade of the suspension of the of the administration of the vaccine, which has been approved for use um, everywhere. Uh, you know, in the EU. Um, uh, and, you know, th- this is where we see this other side of this, which is, oh, we're so terrible. And, oh, Republicans are the conservatives and vaccine hesitancy, and it's so terrible. And what about the science and all of this? And then we have the political leadership of Europe, um, which uh, is is revealed, I think, in a really brilliant piece in New York Magazine by David Wallace Wells on the year of the pandemic that everybody should read. It's maybe the best general survey of the complex issues of why why it is uh, stupid to blame anybody for the spread of the of the of the virus um, and how incredibly complicated it is, but but Europe has unambiguously been worse about this than we have, and then a lot of places have, and uh, and and now they are they are they are delaying. They have now delayed for days the the administration of the only vaccine that they seem to have a handle on. At a time when cases are on the rise there. Right. Yeah, it's pretty bad in Europe right now. And, and <laughs> um, we, we're, we're on a, a really great trajectory as far as caseloads go, but um, in Central and Southern Europe in particular, um, numbers are not good. Right. So once again, the world that I grew up in, in which it was presumed that Europe was a more culturally advanced, sophisticated, and wondrous place where everybody was better at everything and, you know... They they ate better and they had higher cultural standards and they were all wonderful is revealed as a hollow shell of its if it ever was that it ain't it ain't no more and we but should, it's not just it's not just Europe I and mean, that that Wallace Wells piece was really fantastic and so far it, as it demonstrated that the countries that got lockdown right uh, didn't get vaccines and mitigation right and the countries that got mitigation right didn't get lockdown or vaccines right and vice versa and even in East Asia which got lockdown and mitigation strategies fantastically right, they're bungling the vaccine situation. They're bungling the development process and the distribution process, and they're, they have nothing like the kind of success in distrib- distributing vaccines that we're seeing in the United States, um, which is really qu- quite a marvel. I mean, we've been 
braying about how frustrating the vaccine distribution regime in this country has been, but it's actually the world leader by by a lot um, in in total numbers and cumulative numbers, uh, absolute numbers as opposed to uh, percentage of population. Right. So thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back tomorrow for Noah, Abe, and Christina. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.